You are not a God. An evangelist once said, if there is no joy in your faith, there is a leak in your Christianity somewhere. I bring this series in Esther to a close today, and there is a leak-patching truth for us to consider. And that is that God reverses adversity. God reverses adversity or crisis, we could say. If you're joining us for the, the first time today, the book of Esther tells the remarkable story of how an orphan girl saved her people, the Jews, from genocide. Esther lived about 500 years before the birth of Christ, and she was taken uh, by the king at the time, the Persian king, King Ahasuerus, to be his wife and queen. Her older cousin Mordecai had an enemy whose name was Haman. And you remember Haman was second in command to the king at the time. And he hated Mordecai so much that he had uh, ordered or he had decreed that not only Mordecai, but Mordecai's people, the Jews, be annihilated. Uh, unbeknown to him, though, Esther, the new queen, was herself Jewish. Last week, last Sunday, Esther exposed Haman's plot to the king, and that led to Haman's execution. But although Haman had died, Haman's plan was still very much alive. And yet, as you heard from our reading, God reversed the adversity of the Jews. And that truth can patch up the leak on your Christianity today. The Bible says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but God can and God ultimately will reverse all of the adversity leveled at you for your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't tell you when, but I can tell you that whether in this life or in the life to come, God will turn on its head all of the opposition leveled at you for your love for Christ. That since God is for you, no one can be ultimately against you. God can and God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten and, and, and reverse whatever comes against your soul because of your love for Christ. And in these Three closing chapters. We're going to be looking at three dramatic reversals. Uh, number one, dishonor turns to honor. Number two, death turns to life. And number three, despair turns to joy. So first then, dishonor turns to honor. And I'm thinking particularly about Mordecai. Because as I mentioned uh, just a few moments earlier, the, the doomsday scenario in the book of Esther was really birthed out of Haman's hatred of Mordecai. And yet after Haman had emptied every vial of vitriol on Mordecai's head, Mordecai ended up obtaining Haman's house. Uh, back then in, in Persia, the 
property or the assets of convicted traitors was given, gifted to the crown. That's why chapter 8 begins by telling us that the king gave Queen Esther the house of Haman. And what did Queen Esther do with the house of Haman? Well, she gave it to Mordecai. So imagine for a moment, Mordecai now, in your mind's eye, swinging the keys to Haman's house around his first finger. Uh, picture him fluffing the pillows on Haman's bed before he lay down for a Sunday afternoon nap. Imagine him reading on Haman's rocking chair with his feet up on Haman's footstool. That's what we call a reversal. And then there was the, the matter of the king's signet ring. Uh, remember earlier in Esther when the king's signet ring had been on Haman's hand. Haman used it to seal the order of genocide to the Jews. But now that it was on Mordecai's hand, he used it to seal the order of, of life for the Jews. That's quite a reversal too. And then there was the, the matter of Mordecai's wardrobe. Uh, you remember when, when Mordecai first heard about the, the order of genocide, what did he do? He, he tore his robes. He put on sackcloth and ashes, and then he uh, approached the, the gate of the king. But having sent the, the counter-proclamation throughout the Persian Empire, chapter 8, verse 15 says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. That's quite a reversal. And then finally, Mordecai ended up obtaining Haman's position of power. Look at the very last verse of the book of Esther, chapter 10, verse 3. He says, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular, uh, popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. There's quite a reversal for you. Only one that God himself could bring about. So friends, allow me to state the obvious truth for us. God is more capable of reversing our adversity than we are capable of imagining. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask, think, dream, pray, or imagine. God is able to, to topple the bloodthirsty government of North Korea and make a born-again, Holy Spirit-filled believer its president. And who knows whether we might actually live to see that day. God can regenerate the hearts of terrorists and turn them into missionaries. God can make justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream in the Gaza Strip. And Esther God, <laughs> Esther's God is our God today. He is today who he was back then. And there is no shadow of turning with him. And wonderfully, the depths to which our adversity takes us is often outmatched by the superior heights that God raises us to. Fast forward 500 years, 
from this moment in Esther. And Jesus Christ had the religious establishment, the Roman Empire, and every demon in hell staring at him down. And they put him to death by nailing him to a cross. And yet in that place of apparent defeat came Jesus' decisive victory. Because it was there on the cross that Jesus accomplished the salvation of sinners, the very reason he came. Mission accomplished. The work finished. And that because Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in him. And furthermore, the Lamb that was led to the slaughter, rose again as the Lion of Judah. Because when Jesus' bloated body began to twitch, and when Jesus' blood-sealed eyes opened, and when Jesus' once crucified feet stood in Joseph's tomb, he crushed the serpent's head. And today, Jesus is ruling and reigning over all of his and over all of our enemies at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a reversal for you. And if you are united to him, you will one day reign with him. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that, if, that we are children of God. And if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Therefore, friends, stay the course. It will be worth it in the end. Hang in there as a believer in Jesus. Don't quit. Persevere. Persist. Press on. Endure. Keep your head down. Keep your hands up. Put one foot in front of the other until you see Jesus face to face and crown him Lord of all. There will be the reversal for you that we have all been waiting for. It will all be worth it in the end. Glory is coming. And the order of the Christian life is suffering today, glory later on. Today we're, we're counted as the scum of the earth. But our dishonor today will be turned to honor tomorrow. Pearly gates and streets of gold and Jesus' own presence for all of eternity laid up in heaven for us, kept imperishable and undefiled for us. So allow me then today, friends, to, to encourage you to lean into the habits that make the hope of heaven feel all the more real to you. Prioritize those practices that cause the future hope of heaven to strengthen you in your weakness and assure you that honor is coming. <coughs> Speaking personally for a moment, I typically find that on Sunday mornings, 
I walked to the community centre, feeling about as sick as a dog. And my hands are shaking, and my knees are knocking, and my heart is pounding. And then I stand and I listen to our praise and to our worship of King Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I find that I gain a foretaste of heaven. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I'm strengthened. And I'm ready to do what God has called me to do. And so whatever it is for you, lean into those habits, lean into those practices, those priorities that make tomorrow's honour feel more real in today's shame for Christ. God reverses adversity. Number one, dishonour turns to honour, but then second, uh, death turns to life. And I'm thinking, aren't I, of course, about the reversal of the near annihilation of the Jews. In, in Esther chapter 8, Esther fell at the king's feet. She, she wept, she pleaded with him to avert Haman's plot of genocide. But the king reminded Esther that once a king's order has been sealed with the king's signet ring, there was no going back. There was no reversal. And so the best he could do was permit Mordecai to write, publish, and send a counter-proclamation throughout the Persian Empire, uh, granting the Jews permission to defend their lives. And so as you heard, that's exactly what they did. Esther chapter 9 verse 1 says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, and that was to kill, to destroy, to annihilate the Jews, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. There's our word. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And therefore, at long last, we the readers can breathe a sigh of relief. Haman's plan failed. The Jews were spared. Why? Because God reversed their adversity. And it's at this point that I have to do something that I don't think I've done in my 15 years of preaching. Uh, and that is disagree with every commentator I read this past week. See, all of the, the eggheads and the clever clogs that I read uh, this past week, they all roundly condemned Esther in these last chapters. And they said that she behaved no better than Haman had behaved in the past. And they argued that because um, of what Esther had done to Haman's already ten dead sons, impaling them in Susa for all to see, and then asking the king to grant the Jews an additional day uh, to, to do what they needed to do to their enemies. But friends, let's remember for a moment, this was about self-defense. Uh, Esther did not ask permission for her people to go on a mindless killing spree, a, a murderous rampage, as it were. No, no, no. She asked for her people to be given the right to defend their lives if needed. And, and Esther's impaling of Haman's already dead sons was surely only meant to function as a deterrent. It, it was surely a, a, a clear, albeit, albeit grisly, warning to the enemies, so as to say that if they would have heeded the warning, then no further loss of life would have been... Had. And so the question then is, what about us? Uh, what are we supposed to do with these verses? Are we supposed to kill our enemies? Well, friends, emphatically, no. 
See, whereas Esther gave her enemies what they deserved, Jesus gave us what we don't deserve. His grace, his kindness, his mercy, and his love to us. And therefore, as his people, we are called to go and to do likewise. What did the Apostle Peter say? For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So although you may have to restrain someone who seeks to do harm to others, and although sovereign nations have the right to defend their citizens, Jesus said to us, his disciples, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then later he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And so do you see that we advance Jesus kingdom then, not by killing our enemies, but by loving our enemies, just as Jesus loved us. And so to those of you who are, who are Christians here today, I want to apply that into two arenas in your life. The first is the family. And I say that because I know some of you are in almost impossible marriages. Uh, maybe there is verbal abuse behind closed doors or something close to it, profound disrespect thrown at you every day. Maybe it feels as though bitterness and disrespect are baked into the walls of your home. And it's not that you should never challenge your spouse. It's not that you shouldn't ever get anyone else involved uh, into your marriage. But it is that returning like for like, verbal abuse for verbal abuse, bitterness for bitterness, Disrespect for disrespect will not work the righteousness of God. And instead, we are called, aren't we, to live as close to the cross of Christ as we can in order to extend what we ourselves have received. And then the second arena is the church. I, I heard this past week about a small church in the, in the late 1800s. It had two deacons. And they, they hated each other. And one day, one of the deacons nailed a, a small wooden peg to the back of the church. And it was just so that the pastor could put his hat on it on a cold day. And the other deacon was outraged. It, he hadn't been consulted. And so the church split. And one of the congregations was called the Peg Baptist Church, and the other congregation was called the Anti-Peg Baptist Church. I, and we might be tempted to, to laugh at that, but if that is a true story, 
let me assure you, Jesus Christ is not laughing. Mm -hmm. It must not be so among us. If we're called to love our enemies in the world, how much more our brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ. God reverses adversity. Dishonor turned to honor. Second, death turned to life. And then third, despair turned to joy. And I'm thinking, aren't I, of course, about the, the Feast of Purim. Because whereas there, there should have been genocide, there was a party instead. That's quite a, a reversal. Remember back in, in Esther chapter 3, Haman had sought counsel from the so-called gods or goddesses of, uh, of the pagan world when he sought to get their uh, guidance on when the publication or when the proclamation of genocide should be spread throughout the Persian Empire. And he did that, didn't he, by casting pur or by casting lots, or by throwing dice, as we would say today. And therefore, the Feast of, of Purim, the, the, which is just a plural of pur, like die and dice, was given its name in order for the Jews to remember the divine reversal that occurred on the date of their scheduled slaughter. So that now, 2,500 years later, the Jews still, still celebrate the Feast of Purim. But friends, there is something here for us too. Because just as God was over the, over the rolling of the dice and of the deliverance of the Jews, God was over our deliverance too from greater enemies of sin, death and hell. If, you, if you're here today and you've been saved from sin, death and hell, that is because God sovereignly predestined you to salvation in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. You were, you were given the right to become a child of God, not because of your parents' DNA, not because you, you craved it in and of yourself, not because of your own free will, but because of God's own free will that he exercised before the foundation of the world. He chose you. To be his own. And just as God's sovereignty was over the deliverance of the Jews, God's sovereign deliverance was over us as well in our deliverance from greater enemies. You, you thought that your parents had just signed you up for camp one week. And yet you had no idea that God had ordained before the foundation of the world that that would be the very week when your chains would fall off and your heart would be free so that you would rose and go forth and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you thought that you just couldn't sleep one night. But you had no idea that God had taken away sleep from you so that you would start to flick through the channels and end up hearing Billy Graham preach the gospel and be saved. You, you thought that your friend had just invited you to the Christmas craft fair. But you had no idea that God, before the foundation of the world, had ordained that that would be the very event, that would be the very thing that God would use to call you out of darkness and into his most marvelous light. And since God was all over your conversion, here's the word of application. Celebrate. Mm -hmm. Celebrate, just like the Jews did at this marvelous feast. 
The deliverance in the book of Esther and the deliverance in our lives calls for nothing less than an all-out celebration. And therefore, Easter and Christmas and baptism and the Lord's Supper and worship Sunday morning and Sunday evening should feel like nothing less than a solemn and a reverent celebration of God's most marvelous grace. Those are the times where we celebrate the deliverance thanks to God's electing grace. Yes, we, we can do that, can't we, by ourselves as we, we open our Bibles privately and before the Lord uh, individually. But this deliverance here was too great, was too marvelous to be celebrated in isolation. It called for a gathering, and so does our deliverance too. But what's more, the book of Esther leaves us in no doubt at all that yes, even though God is absolutely sovereign, we also have a part to play in God's plans being worked out and fleshed out and brought to fruition in the world. And we see, don't we, the, the kissing, the, the marrying, the joining, the reconciling of, yes, God's sovereignty on the one hand, and also man's responsibility on the other. Esther must have felt like she had walked into a nightmare when she had been taken to satisfy the sex drive of a perverted pagan king. And yet she had no idea what God had really called her to in the saving of a countless multitude. And friend, God not only saved you, but he saved you for a purpose. He saved you in order for you to be the means by which his plans and purposes might be worked out in the lives of those whom you know. God not only saved you, but he called you to your school for such a time as this. He not only redeemed you, but he called you to your workplace for such a time as this. And he not only delivered you, but he ensured that you would live on your street and in your neighborhood and in your town in this year for such a time as this. And the part that you're called to play might just be more significant than you ever dreamed possible. The question is, what are you going to do? with the divine appointment that God has called you to in your life. Why not use it to be the, the best witness that you could possibly be by working the hardest in your workplace? Uh, why, not? why not take it to take every opportunity to lovingly share the gospel of Jesus Christ in order that you might save some? Uh, why not be the most caring person in your family so that the hardest heart among your siblings or cousins might be softened under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do just let me say, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, God brought you here for such a time as this today. It is no accident that you're here. God has given you this divine appointment. He's called you here today to, to hear the message that can save you just as the Jews were saved from destruction as well. And in short, that message is this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
And he did that by living the life that we could not live. And by dying the death that we should have died, the death for sin. And rising again in victory over Satan and over sin and over death, demons and hell. So that if anyone would turn and trust in him, they might be saved to newness of life. Every sin that you have ever or will ever commit forgiven. Adopted into God's family. Made a son or a daughter of the living God. Filled with his Holy Spirit. That you might be empowered to obey him. And the hope of heaven guaranteed for you. That when you would close your eyes in death. The first face you would see when you open them again. Would be the face of your Savior. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Here is God's sovereign salvation. And here is your responsibility made clear today. The responsibility to turn and to trust in him. And may you do that today. God reverses adversity. And God reverses the destiny of his enemies who will turn and who will trust in him. For salvation and everlasting life. And may God bless the book of Esther to us as a church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray.